Father in heaven, we truly praise you and thank you. It's such a privilege to worship you. It's a privilege to study your word. Father, it's a privilege just to understand where we are in time so that by your grace we can know exactly what we need to do. I pray that you will do something special in these few moments we have together. That you will pour out your spirit upon us as your people. Please forgive us, we pray, of our sins. And help us, Lord, to receive even the mind of Christ so that we can go forward and do a work that we know heaven has ordained. And I thank you that you have heard this prayer. And I pray that you'll please take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. This is our prayer that we do ask. This is my prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, ever so often, Jesus does make startling statements. He does not make this statement too startled for the purpose of simply startling. But God understands that all the virgins were sleeping. And there is a level of alertness that we should have before we get the ultimate awakening midnight cry call that is soon to come in a second application. And God wants us to be a people prepared to meet our God. It is for this reason that the Lord will have us at times to review prophecy again and again, that we may understand it faithfully, and then by his grace we can give it to others. Jesus made a very startling statement in Matthew, the seventh chapter. It's not only a startling statement, but it's a prophetic statement. And I want you to see what the Bible says in Matthew, the seventh chapter. I would imagine this is a text of scripture the grand majority of us have heard at some point or read at some point, but it's always solemn to consider it again and again. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, the seventh chapter, and when you get there, just please let me know by saying amen. 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 The Bible says in the book of Matthew, the seventh chapter, starting at verse 21, the Bible says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my father, which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. Verse 23 is the most startling point. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus, the Bible declares, is God. And God knows everything. So for one who is God himself to say, depart from me, I never knew you. That is a very deep and profound statement. God wanted us to understand That there was a disconnect. You see, knowing God has a lot more to do than just simply being aware of his existence. The Bible uses this term know sometimes in a very intimate way. In fact, you remember in Genesis that the Bible says that Adam knew his wife Eve. And as a result of knowing his wife, they conceived and brought forth a child. In other words, that term know means an intimate connection, not just an awareness. These people are lost, not because they were not aware about God. The Bible says even devils believe. So they were aware, but the problem was is that there was no intimacy. There was no true love between the creator and the creation. And as a result of that, Jesus, I would imagine with tears in his voice, is going to have to say these extremely sad words one day. Not to a minority, but to a majority. Depart from me. I never knew you. I know it to be a majority because if you look just a few verses up in verses 13 and 14, we can see that it's a majority. Because the Bible says, 
Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. But then it says in verse 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Anytime you compare many with few, many is always the majority. And Jesus is making it clear that the majority of those who profess to know him, who profess to love him, who profess to serve him, who profess to be part of his called out ones. The majority of these people are going to be lost. And I believe that that is a very solemn statement that should alert God's people to pay attention. It should make us really think about our walk with God. There's a lot of people talking about they're saved. A lot of people talking about they're in Christ. There's a lot of talk about being followers of Jesus by using this term that has become absolutely mutilated in this world today, which is called Christian. It seems like people can live any way, practice anything, and have the nerve to still call themselves Christians. I marvel at how entertainers who literally promote fornication, they literally go to concerts, curse and swear. They will literally forget their value and begin to wear the garments of harlotry, breasts showing, backside out, legs out, and everything. And they will actually say, I am a child of the king at the same time. They're ignorant. Christianity has been grossly cheapened. There are people today that will even marry two men in the name of Christ. This is how far we have strayed. So this is why Jesus says there's going to be a lot of people that's talking about names and terms and all these other things. But at the end of the day, he says, the problem is you and I never had a connection. And the question is, do you have it? Oh, no, you might not be as bad as some others. But the question is, are you, do you still have bad in you? You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus came to do one thing and one thing only when he came to this earth. And it's found in Matthew 1 and verse 21. Go to Matthew 1. Jesus came to do one thing. And the only way we go home with Jesus is when this one thing is accomplished. The Bible says very clearly in Matthew, the first chapter, he came to do one thing. So let us not think that because we have something we call minor sins, while other people have major sins, that somehow we're going to have some advantage. No, my brothers and sisters. The Bible says in Matthew chapter one, right there in verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people. What? From their sins, not in their sins. So it doesn't matter if you can look over the street and you can say, look at those sinners and doing all those base things while we have nice suits, nice dresses and everything else. But maybe we have covetousness still in our hearts. While we still have bitterness, anger, resentment and unforgiveness still in our hearts. We might look good on the outside, but we can be like those Pharisees that were whitewashed sepulchers. And we can literally on the inside be dead men's bones. This is not a time for finger pointing. This is a time like never before that we need to claim those words of Psalms 139, 23, and 24 that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We are living in the very final closing scenes of earth's history. And God has given us prophetic view. Not so that we can skimp over it. Not so that we can get to a place where we think we know it so well that we can ignore it. But brothers and sisters, Christ gives us these messages that we might do one thing that Jesus often says in his word. Take heed. Take heed. But at the same time, we must make sure 
that the prophetic realities that are happening in our world do not become, watch my words very carefully, they cannot become our pure motive for following Jesus. Because we see prophetic revelations taking place, because we see all the events that Bible prophecy has shown us, that they are coming to pass in rapid pace. At the same time, we cannot and we should not allow this to become our pure motive of why we follow God. There's a reason why. I can remember years back, brothers and sisters, when I used to listen to some of God's delegated men. And they would go ahead and they would talk about Bible prophecy and they would believe That certain things were going to happen under certain presidents and under certain popes. And they would preach that thing so hard. And they would say, if if Sunday law is coming, the Christ is going to come. And it's going to come under this president and this pope. And the next thing you know, that president is gone and that pope is dead. And a lot of God's people, you know what they do? They start to spiritually yawn. And they go back to sleep. Because they allowed the crisis to become the motive for getting ready. You and I were never requested by God to let the crisis become the great or pure motive for getting ready. And therefore, the question is, then what does motivate the people to get ready? Well, I believe it's in a verse that we all know, but sometimes we don't consider. Go to Revelation 14. Watch the text. You see, when you go to Revelation 14, not only do we understand the pure motive, but we even understand how, in fact, we can get this experience. And notice what the Bible says in Revelation, the 14th chapter. A popular text of scripture, verse 12. In Revelation 14 and verse 12, after John the Revelator is making it clear about these three angels' messages, he summarizes the experience of the third angel by saying, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Question. Are these people trying to keep the commandments of God or are they keeping the commandments of God? Which one? They are keeping. John is making a very what we call definite statement. He is saying here are they that keep. They're doing it. They are keeping the commandments of God. Now if they are keeping the commandments of God, then that means something must be their reality. And you know what it is? It's in John 14. In John the 14th chapter, you find that this must be the reality of these people then if they are in fact keeping the commandments of God. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in John the 14th chapter. In John chapter 14, I want you to watch another popular verse that we need to consider it. The Bible says in John 14 right there in verse 15. The Bible says in John 14 and verse 15, if you what? Love me. What should be our reality? Keep my commandments. John the Revelator says he saw a group of people that keep God's commandments. So that means they and that was their motive. They loved God. Love motivated them to preach when everybody else stayed silent. Love motivated them to say death before dishonor of God and his law is not just a Christian. It's my motto. Love is what motivated these people. And that's the question. Is, have you gotten to the place that you actually love God? Have you gotten to a place where it's no longer the fear of the crisis that is simply motivating you and I or being our pure motive to get ready, but it's my love for Christ that motivates me to get ready? You see, the Bible gives a comparison. It's in the chapter before. Here goes a group of people following the commandments of God and they're doing it because they love him. But there's another group that follows commandments, but it's not based on the same reason. In Revelation 13, 
you will see right there in Revelation, the 13th chapter, a contrast group. They are the group of which those under the third angel were warning people not to receive neither the mark or the image of the beast. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter, notice what it says as we consider verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, and he what? Causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. These people are going to worship. These people are going to follow commandments, but they're going to do it based on force, not love. You see, the only people Jesus is going to bring to heaven are people that are just like him. We often quote Christ Object Lessons, page 69, which tells us Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his people. Then the closing statement. When the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then Jesus will come to claim them as his own. But the question is, what does represent the character of Christ? It's found in 1 John chapter 4, brothers and sisters. I'm just being a reminder to you. Go to 1 John 4. What does it say? The Bible says in the book of 1 John, right there in the fourth chapter, God is simply reminding us of what needs to be our pure motive when we offer him our service, our faithfulness, our demonstrations. The Bible says in the book of 1 John, we're looking at chapter 4. It is right there in the close of verse 8. How do we miss it? The Bible says, he that loveth not knoweth not God. Why? For God is love, brothers and sisters. You see, when God's love, perfect love, is put within our hearts, we will follow him, we will obey him, we will keep all his commandments, and we'll do it for the right reason. Not for personal selfish gain, because I want heaven. Not because we want to avoid punishment. Brothers and sisters, it's going to happen because we love him. It's almost super simple, isn't it? I like simple. The reason these people receive the mark of the beast is because their actions are going to testify what's going on in their hearts. And what's going to be revealed in their hearts is the same thing that Christ had to say to those Pharisees in John 5. And Jesus said in John 5 to those Pharisees, he says, I know that the love of God is not in your heart. Brothers and sisters, it's a great testing day, but another word for testing is a great revealing day. When this mark of the beast crisis comes, it's just going to reveal what was in us all along. There's a lot of so-called champions right now. A lot of present truth tough guys right now. There's a lot of people that think that they really are in right standing with God when Jesus is going to have to give those surprising words. Depart from me. I never knew you. Because that word knew references an intimate connection. There was no love relationship. And so while many are going to follow the beast because they were forced to do it, there's going to be people who voluntarily follow God because they love him. Oh, my brothers and sisters. My goal by his grace, is that I'll be faithful unto death for the right reasons. You see, there's some people that's going to be faithful unto death, but they'll do it for wrong reasons. You remember 1 Corinthians 13? Go there with me. If you remember in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, it is a most profound statement that is made that sometimes we need to consider. I understand why Ellen White literally says we should study 1 Corinthians 13 every day. She literally says, study this chapter every day. I understand that now. Because if you and I were to meditate on what this chapter is talking about, it is absolutely profound. You see, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, and we go ahead and we look at verse 3. 
It says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing, nothing, nothing. One day I read the book Acts of the Apostles, page 318. And when I was reading Acts of the Apostles, page 318, it was commenting right here on 1 Corinthians 13. And the prophet of God, she says very clearly, she says, there will be some who will even die a martyr's death. And she says that while men will go ahead and praise them, she says, if they died a martyr's death for any other reason but heaven-born love, she says, God will regard them as a deluded enthusiast or an ambitious hypocrite. Somebody who dies for God? Our brothers and sisters, listen, you and I both know right now, in our human nature, if we saw somebody that was standing up and said, this Sunday law crisis, I refuse to bow down. People of God, don't be afraid. Stand. And then they go ahead and say, stand. And as they're telling people to stand, and all of a sudden, that person gets gunned down or whatever the case may be, somebody would say, there goes a martyr of God. There goes God's man, God's warrior. But if that standing was not, in other words, if that good work was not for the right motive. And if that motive was anything else but heaven-born love, they will be regarded by God as a deluded enthusiast or an ambitious hypocrite. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of prophetic reality, one of the things we have to do is learn the motives of why we serve. And the reason we serve, the reason we're faithful is because we know him. And as Desire of Ages, page 22 says, to know God is to love God. And if that love of Christ is not in your heart today, I'm so thankful that Romans 5 and verse 5 lets us know how to get it. And the Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So if you lack that love, even today, you can plead with God, Lord, please grant me your spirit and put your love within my heart. And the spirit of God is going to guide you into truth. And as he guides us and we learn about God and get to know God, literally a heaven born love will be birthed in our hearts and God will get all the credit. Amen. But I, when I look at Jesus... I look at how he responded to prophetic reality, and I believe Jesus is our example. Can you say amen to that? So let's go back to Mark 1. You see, when you look back at Mark 1, we see the model of Christ. And I want you to see what the Bible says. In Mark 1, when Jesus saw the reality of prophecy being fulfilled, I wonder what he did about it. The Bible says in Mark chapter 1, our opening text, our scripture text, what did it say in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15? The Bible says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, watch this, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. When Jesus saw time being fulfilled, he went to work to save others. That's almost super simple. You know what a lot of people are doing right now when they see prophecy being fulfilled? They don't work and they try to preserve themselves. And this is how some people understand country living. Let me get away far enough 
Let me get a P.O. Box address so nobody can really find me inside a P.O. Box. Let me go ahead and do this. And there's a lot of people that pervert the gift of country living and literally make it something where now it becomes this silly hiding game. Hiding from the devil and hiding from everybody else. That's ridiculous, brothers and sisters. If you and I study prophecy right, we're supposed to bring people to our country home regularly. Did you hear that last word I said? Regularly. That's what Enoch did. He always brought people back from the city to his house. You know why? Because it was in the home that God desired real Christianity to be revealed. You think Christianity is accomplished at a desk? Brothers and sisters, do you know how many devils there are out there that can preach? We cannot think that the work is being accomplished at the desk, brothers and sisters. We got to let people see what Christianity is off the pulpit in the home where we are who we really are. And those people come there and they see what's going on and they see men, husbands that actually love their wives. Can you imagine that? Wives that actually love their husband. Children that actually love each other and parents that love their children, children that love their parents and a family that loves Jesus and governs their home by God's word and not their own opinions. Do you understand how rare that is? Even by many who profess to call themselves present truth. And so it is that God wants us to understand that the more that we see prophecy being fulfilled, we need to respond like Jesus. And it is not time for quote-unquote self-preservation as it is for self-sacrificial service. If we're really going to respond to prophecy like Christ responded. That's what I read in Mark 1, 14 and 15. He saw time is fulfilled. He said, I got to preach the gospel. And that's what you and I are supposed to do. And that's why last night we talked about understanding our message, understanding what has been given to us, knowing what it means to prophesy again. Because the more that we understand that is the better we can be put in line to do what the Lord desires us to do. If you understand what the preacher is saying thus far, let me hear you say amen. amen. Well, so it is that when we begin to study prophecy, God has given us several symbols and examples. Perhaps the most popular symbol that God has given us to understand end time prophecy is this image that I would imagine everybody has seen at some point, especially in your seven day Adventist life. At some point in your seven day Adventist life, you have seen the pictorial of the image of Daniel 2, the image of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And when he saw it, you remember that he didn't understand it. He couldn't understand it. He was ready to kill people if, if he didn't get an understanding. And next thing you know, God used his man, Daniel. And Daniel came and God gave him understanding, interpretation. And Daniel came before the king as an intercessor on behalf of wicked people that were about to die. As well as on behalf of his own life and his brothers. And most importantly for the glory of God and the benefit of Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel began to explain what this means. And you know this, and I would imagine we can go through this very quickly and very simply. When they began to go through all the imagery, they got to the head of gold. And the head of gold represented what? Babylon. Very good. The arms and breast of silver represented what? Medo-Persia. The belly and thigh of brass represented what? Greece. And then the legs of iron represented what? Rome. And then the feet of iron and clay represented what? Same thing every time. Without failure. Every time I go amongst the people of God. And I ask, 
head of gold, almost in harmony, everybody says Babylon. Arms and breasts of silver. Oh, Medo-Persia. Belly and thigh of brass. Greece. Legs of iron. Rome. Feet of iron and clay. Confusion. Confusion just kicks in. What do those feet of iron and clay represent? We have to understand it. Now watch this. The feet of iron and clay. Let's, let's consider it this way. Who remembers what came after the feet of iron and clay? What came after? Okay, so there's a stone cut out without hands out of the mountain. And the stone that comes out, this stone crushes the image from the feet all the way up to the top. Is that right? Okay, and when the stone does that, the stone crushes all the previous kingdoms and then sets up an eternal kingdom. This kingdom is none other than the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. Now, that means then that the feet of iron and clay, is it going to exist up until the second coming of Christ? Yes. That's why it can't be limited to the ten divided nations of Western Europe. You understand that? It can't be limited to the ten divided nations of Western Europe because we know there was ten, but then how many got plucked up? Three. Three, and then there's only seven, but yet how many toes remain all the way to the end? Ten. ten. So obviously, it has to go beyond. That's why I'm using my words carefully. It is not limited. In other words, the ten divided nations of Western Europe, it is inclusive, but it's not limited to the ten divided nations of Western Europe. It's a principle that was governing not just the ten divided nations, but everything after that. Now watch this. So when we get here, I'm going to tell you what I believe the feet of iron and clay represent. I believe the feet of iron and clay represents the combining of church and state. Now why do I believe that? You see, right now I'm saying believe because I didn't prove it yet. But once I prove it, I'm not going to tell you I believe. I'm going to tell you I know. Why do I believe... The feet represent churchcraft and statecraft. It's very simple. Notice. Let's zoom in. When you zoom in on the feet of iron and clay, right or wrong, the iron, is that a new element? No. No, No, it is not. It's not a new element. So what did the iron represent in the legs? So what does the iron represent in the feet? Still represents Rome. And what was Rome? Rome was a civil power. Is that right? Yes. Rome was a civil power. But then clay, is that the new element? Mm -hmm. Yes, clay is the new element. So when you think about the clay, then the question is, what prophetically does God call clay? Notice, if you look at Jeremiah 18, verses 4 through 6, Isaiah 64, and verse 8, you can even read Romans, the ninth chapter. And when you read it, you will find the clay is often represented as God's people or church. This is why you would hear the term, I am the potter, you are the clay. God's people. So when you think of the clay, prophetically or symbolically, we understand the clay to be church. So when you look at the feet of iron and clay, we are seeing a mingling of church craft and state craft. It's a principle that's going to take us up to the close of time. And sometimes people say, Brother Lemon, that was crafty what you said, but I still question, is it really so? Well, if you don't believe me, then believe the prophet. Because the prophet tells us right here, manuscript release, book 15, page 39. The prophet of God says, the mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and the clay. All I simply wanted to do was show you Bible first and then prophet second. 
You understand that? Yes. This is why I've learned the writings of Ellen White is simply a magnifying glass. It just magnifies what God already said. You understand that? Yes. All right. So here it is. The mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and the clay. This union is weakening all the power of the churches. So the more that there's a push for church and state to come together, it actually weakens the power of the church. And this is why last night when I showed you Roger Williams, I showed you he played a very special role in Rhode Island when God was building back up his lighthouse. Because Roger Williams was the one who brought prominently before the people of God religious liberty, which sums up the separation of church and state. Now, the reason why this is important is because go to Revelation 13. Let's take a look at now some last day history or last day incidents and even last day future things that's about to take place. When you read Revelation 13, it's a very interesting thing that we see because the condition of the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, as we see it in the feet stage or the foot stage. I want you to see something the Bible says in Revelation 13. Now we're going to go ahead and consider verses 1 to 3. The Bible says in Revelation 13, starting at verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horn ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him something. What did the dragon give him? Power. Power. Seat. And great authority. Don't lose that. So the dragon gave him power, seat, and great authority. Verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And it says, and his deadly wound was healed. And how much of the world? All, All the world wondered after the beast. Question. Is this wound healed? Yes. How many of us say, yes, it is healed? If you believe the wound is healed. All right. How many of us say, no? All right. How many of us say, I don't know? All right, now watch this. It's very simple. My arm. I'm going to use my arm as an example. The sign of my arm being healthy right now is that I can do this very easily. Easy, no problem, right? One day, my arm gets broken and it gets severely damaged. According to your understanding, what would be the clearest sign that my wound has been healed? When I can once again do this again, right? Once I can do what I did before then obviously that means my wound has now been healed. Make sense? Yeah. Very good. What, according to verse 2, did the beast power have? That was given unto him by the devil. It was power, seat, and great authority. Now we need to break that down. What does this mean? Power, seat, and great authority. Well, let's talk about power for a moment. Go down further in the verses of Revelation 13. Let's look at this power. Because you're going to understand some things. Because I believe that we need to get a clear picture of the realities that are surrounding us right now. So we can get to work. That we can get to work. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 13. It actually begins going backwards again. It starts going through history again. So at verse 3... The beast's power was up to its wounding point. Does anybody know what year that took place? Very good class. So 1798. Amen. Now, the verses after are now going to go backwards. It's going to go backwards from 1798, and it's going to repeat history. And you see God do that a lot. You see God do that a lot. In Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our own likeness, and so on. Genesis 1:26. Then in Genesis 2, the Lord kneeled down. And made man out of the dust of the ground. You can see it's not chronological, is it? 
It's not chronological. God is rehearsing what he did and he's giving more detail. You see that? So the same way we see God do that in Genesis 1 and 2 is the same way God does that throughout the Bible. So we're going to see another example. So here it is in verse 3. The beast's power has gotten up to 1798 where it received its deadly wound under Napoleon, Berthier, etc. Now the Bible starts going backwards from 1798 and builds us up. So notice what it says. It says now in verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him. And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And what? Power was given unto him to continue how long? 42 months. So 42 months. What's another way of saying that? 1260 years, three and a half years, right? So we know that's, again, the 538 to 1798 period. You understand that? So there's a rehearsing. There's going back now to go forward. But now notice this. It goes on right there. Now we're going to verse uh, 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Now watch very carefully verse 7. It says, and it was given unto him. This is talking about the same beast power, yes? Same beast power? Yes. Yep. It says, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And what? Power. power. Notice that. And power was given him over all what? Kindreds and tongues and nation. Question. When you have power over a nation, what kind of power is that? Civil. Civil power. So did this beast have civil power? Yes, it did. You understand that? It had civil power. But now you're looking at verse 8. And it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall do what? Worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Does this beast also impel people to worship it? So what kind of power is that called? Church or religious power. So notice, this beast, the first beast, exercised power through the union of church and state. You follow that? That's why, look at Revelation 12. That's why it says what it says in Revelation 12. If you look at Revelation 12 verse 13, what does it say? It says in Revelation, the 12th chapter, notice what it says in verse 13. In other words, how was it able to do this? This is how. It says, and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he did what? He persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. The woman representing God's church. The dragon gave the first beast power. So the dragon is working through the first beast to persecute God's church. And what did God's church do? Notice what it says in verse 14. We went over this last night. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly where? Into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nursed for how long? Time. Times. Dividing of times. Is that the same time as the 42 months? Yes. So, we know that this is what the first beast was active in. So, the dragon is persecuting the church through the first beast, the papacy. How did it do it? It had power over nations, which we call civil power, and it had power to compel people to worship, which is called religious power. So as a result of the union of church and state, it was able to persecute the people of God. 
Are you following? Yes. Now watch this one then. Let's go back to Revelation 13 then. So when we go back to Revelation 13 now, we have an issue. Because the Bible lets us know another one comes on the scene. And the Bible says in Revelation, the 13th chapter, it says in verse 11, And I beheld what? Another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now watch this. And he exercises how much? All the power of the first beast before him whose deadly wound was healed. So if this second beast is going to exercise all the power of the first beast, what did we identify the first beast had? Power which he manifested through the union of church and state. So if this second beast is going to also begin to exercise the power, all of it, of the first beast, then that means the second beast's mission is to combine what? Church and state. Who is this second beast? United States of America. United States of America is the second beast. So that means that what we have to see in the future, remember, the feet of iron and clay existed until the second coming. And what does the feet of iron and clay represent? It represents church and state. So the Bible was shown that before Christ comes, there will be an exercise of nations where they're going to seek to pull together what? Church and state. And now in Revelation 13, 11, we see the second beast is going to play that role. It is none other than the United States of America. And we know it to be so, brothers and sisters. I mean, I wish we could go through this like really, really, really deep because I like doing it. Because if you look at Revelation 13, 11, again, it says, and I beheld another beast. What are those next three words? Coming up out. If you were to study that out in the, in the Greek, if you were to study that out in the original language, that same concept of coming up out, it deals with a gradual growth. It's kind of like when Jesus would talk about the plants and he would say first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. Remember that? And that it's growing at different stages. That's how this second beast was coming up. So what happened before verse 11? What did it say in verse 10? It said in verse 10, he that leadeth into captivity shall what? Go into captivity. What's this talking about? What's this talking about? Exactly. This is talking about how the first beast was going to receive its deadly wound. He that was leading into captivity is going to go into captivity. He that kills with the sword is going to be killed with the sword. So this was talking about how the first beast, the papacy, was going to ultimately receive its wound, which was in what year? 1798. Then it says, and then I beheld another beast that was already gradually growing Right around the time of 1798. What kingdom do we know that was gradually growing and developing right around the time that Pope went into captivity in 1798? What nation? It is the United States of America. No question about it. No question about it. United States of America plays a very serious role in Bible prophecy. And as a bunch of Americans, we need to especially pay attention. Because we're right on the soil. And if anybody's making plans to get out of the city into the country, move into another country. All I'm here to let you know is what's happening here is going to come and get you where you go. So don't think, well, let me just move out of America. And I can go here and I can eat fruit that grows all year long. I mean, boy, I listen to some of the most selfish reasons why people leave the city. That ought not be our motive. So God wants to make it clear. Yes, it's all going to start here in America, but it's going to branch out. 
Why do we know that? Go back to Revelation 13. Let me show you. You see the Bible says in Revelation 13 again, looking at verse 12, and he exercises how much power? All the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth. And then which other end to worship the first beast? So it starts in America, but it's coming to a country near you. So no matter what, running is not the solution. Because that's not the motive of God's last day servants. Amen? Now, it said it's going to have two horns like a lamb. But it's going to speak as a dragon. We need to break that down. So let's consider it. Number one, did you know that horns in the Bible can represent power? Horns in the Bible can represent power. How do we know that? Well, let's take a look right here. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 4. The Bible says, and his brightness was as the light. He had what? Horns coming out of his hand. And there, out of his hand, there was the hiding of his power. So notice that out of the horns came what? Power. So when you hear the horns, when you hear that concept, the horns, it's talking about power. So when America was coming up into existence, it had how many horns? Two, Two horns like what? Lamb. Like a lamb. Now we know symbolically whenever a lamb is used in scripture, it is referring to none other than the Savior. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, right? So we know that these were two powers that was to govern this nation or kingdom that was going to represent Christian virtue. What were these two powers? Well, it's very simple. If you think about it, number one, it was republicanism, a government without a king. That's what republicanism is. It's a government without a king. And that's why you have 1 Samuel 8, verses 5 through 7. You remember the children of Israel? They were saying, oh, we want to have a king like everybody else. And God says, you don't need a king. He says, I'm your king. No, no, no. We want to be governed like everybody else. And that's why ultimately when they fell, what does the Bible say? Go to 1 Samuel 12. If you go to 1 Samuel, the 12th chapter, what did they say? 1 Samuel, we're looking at chapter 12. What does the Bible say that they came to their conclusion? Notice what it says. They were first coming to God. Oh, Lord, please give us a king that we can be like everybody else, that we can be governed like everybody else. And notice what the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 19, And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we what? Die not, for we have added unto all our sins this evil, and what did they do? To ask us a king. It was an evil thing that they did that, because they were denouncing God. Remember God told Samuel? He said, Samuel, stand back. He says, they didn't reject you. He said, they rejected me. So republicanism was a beautiful principle that governed the beginning of the United States of America. A government without a king, men were able to follow the dictates of their own conscience. And that is very lamb-like. But not only that, notice this, it was not just that, it was also Protestantism. A church without a pope. A church without a pope. These were the two powers that governed the beginning of the United States of America. Oh, my brothers and sisters, the United States of America started off beautiful. Started off beautiful. Because it allowed for what we are now missing today. Protestantism, a church without a pope. In other words, religious freedom. 
That was a beautiful virtue. That was literally the impetus of God. That's why Jesus said in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. God believes in liberty. God believes in freedom of conscience. That's even how the church was supposed to be governed. We become very papal, brothers and sisters, when we begin to stamp our fingers and our thumbs on everybody that doesn't think like us. It's like we lost the virtue of understanding what it is to labor with one another. I mean, literally, you can go to some Seventh-day Adventist churches today, and if a brother starts saying, you know, I think this is what the Bible teaches, and let's say it's some crazy apostate doctrine, what a lot of people are doing today is they say, is that right? Hmm. And they start going, listen, watch out for that guy. And they begin labeling very quickly. Remember, labeling versus labor. And they begin label, 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 instead of going to the brother and saying, brother, so you believe you have a revelation. Well, let's go ahead. Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. Bring your Bible and bring all your sources. And we're going to do the same thing. I remember, brothers, years ago, I've been in this church for 23 years. And for some people, that's short. But for me, that's long. And 23 years ago, when I first joined the church, I came into the church, started learning a lot of things. And as I started to learn, I got to a place where I didn't really know much about Ellen White's writings. So a brother came up to me in the form of deception. And he started to say, did you know that the Seventh-day Adventist church has become Babylon? I said, really? He said, yep. And he started to show me quotations. And he would show that when L.O.I. says, we are in danger of becoming a sister to fallen Babylon. I don't know if you ever read that. Testimonies on sexual behavior where she was counseling an elder. And she started saying these statements. So I was like, oh, no. And I had one very serious problem when I joined the church. Whatever I believed, I taught it. So as I started to learn this thing, I went to the elders because I was an elder. They made me an elder real quick, too quick. And when I became an elder, I came to the elders. I said, elders, bad news. And they said, what's wrong? I said, the church is Babylon. We got to go. We have to come out. God said, come out. And listen, we can't come this far to stop now. We got to come out. And I was dead serious. And I praise God that they did not do like what a lot of people do today. They could have leaned over and whispered. And all of a sudden, I could have just got a notice that I'm no longer an elder. Getting kicked out of the church. And everything, and nobody sat down, prayed with me, studied with me, nothing. But that's not what they did. Elder James came, they said, Dwayne, they said, come here. They said, so do you have this information? I said, I got it in my bag. They said, let's sit down. Elder James, Elder Morgan, Elder Montu, my mentors. And my father figures in the church at that time. Those brothers came together and said, let's, let's study it, let's talk about it. And they came together, we started the study, and he said, so, so what you got? I said, look at this right here. And I'll just give them the quotes, give them the quotes, because I pulled it off a website. You understand? Pulled it off a website. Had to be true. <laughs> so I started going through. Boom, boom, boom. And I said, notice this. Notice this. Notice it. The church is Babylon. And then Elder James lovingly, patiently, he came to me and he said, Dwayne, he says, I have a question. I said, what's the question, Elder James? He said, when the quote finishes, what is that dot, 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 dot next to the quote? At that time, in my ignorance, I said, what that means is period, 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 period. That's what it means. Period. End of discussion. And I was dead serious. I was like, that's the end of the discussion. He said, no, Dwayne. What this means is that there's more to the quote that was cut out. Why don't we look up the full references? I said, okay. Started looking at the full references one by one. I said, what, 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 what? Oh, man. And I realized 
I was wrong. I was wrong. And they said, do you see it now? Yes. Do you surrender these false teachings? I said, I do. Thank you, guys. He said, all right, let's finish the work. Let's pray. We prayed together, and I was still an elder. I was still working, but now I was enlightened. You see, brothers and sisters, sometimes we forget that the principle of religious freedom is not only our message to those outside of our church. It's a message to those of us inside of our church. Sometimes, I have to say it, sometimes leadership can become to a point where they become like popes. And they begin to try to force people to think how they think. And if you don't think how we think, we will put our spiritual thumbs on you and stop you from doing anything else rather than laboring. With the soul and saying, come, let's sit down. Let's talk about it. You don't see a lot of that happening nowadays. That biting is exceedingly and abundantly popular. Evil surmising is popular. People in our church have a right to think differently from us. And when they do and when it gets dangerous, Jesus instructed us on how to work with them. And it's not often how we do it. we got to learn how to sit down one-on-one. We have to learn how to then get individuals involved to come back to counsel. And all along our efforts is our heart desires of drawing that soul back in the arms of Jesus. That's not how we treat a lot of people. Listen to what I'm saying because I'm a layman. And I see what a lot of lay people get. I see lay people that get excited. And they sometimes get too excited. Maybe they have a zeal without knowledge. I've seen that lots of times. But brothers and sisters, the way we deal with people. Brother came up to me at a camp meeting. He said, Brother Lemon, I'm just here to let you know I'm a prophet. (laughs) Now, again, I could have just said, stay right there. And I could have done my whispering work, right? I didn't do that. I said, you're a prophet? He said, yes, I'm a prophet. I said, okay. I said, well, if you're a prophet, then I said, certainly you don't mind if I test you. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, the Bible lets us know that all prophets should be tested. I can't just accept it. I've got to test you first. And if I test you, and if you pass the test, I'll accept your prophetic gift. Now, I knew in my mind, this brother's no prophet. I already knew. In my mind, I was convinced. I was, like this. I, was, I was like, I don't believe it. I don't believe that God has to raise up another because we have all the prophetic utterings that we need to get from earth to heaven. Amen. I believe that. So, therefore, I was just like, I don't believe he's a prophet. But I said, nevertheless, I said, for his edification, I'll do this. So then we started to go through it. I threw out a couple of tests. I had like 12 tests. By the time we got to test two, he failed. So when he failed test number two, I just said, brother, I said, I'm sorry. I said, but you failed this test because the Bible says this. Therefore, I cannot accept that you are a prophet. Do you understand? And I said, listen, man, be careful. I said, I know what it is sometimes to have dreams and things of that nature. But Ecclesiastes tells us that some dreams come as a result of a multitude of business. Sometimes you're busy watching trees, watching trees, and watching trees. Maybe you cut them down for a living. So one day you have a dream about a tree. And all of a sudden you're thinking you're Nebuchadnezzar. And all this, it's like, no. Dreams can come as a multitude of business. Because there's things you're doing in life that you suddenly have a dream about. It does not mean that you have the prophetic gift. You understand that? So we have to understand how to work with people. I believe that our understanding of Protestantism and the religious freedom, we need to understand how to more faithfully exercise that even in the church. Because there's a lot of good talent, good talent, godly people that are offshoots. And some of us pushed them away because of the way that we have responded to them. And if we would have just simply had labored with them rather than being busy simply labeling them. 
there's a lot of those special people, those anointed people that could be part of God's team right now in the church finishing the work. So we have to know how to work with people. Does it get to a place where sometimes discipline may have to get to the place of disfellowship? Absolutely. But the Bible says that when we disfellowship them, Matthew 18, 15 through 18, when we disfellowship them, the Bible says, then we treat them as the heathen. Brothers and sisters, do you ever watch how God tells us to treat the heathen? God says, go win them. Some of us say, Jesus said, treat them as a heathen. Goodbye. And we just let them go. And we say, that's the heathen. Heathen. And we walk away and we don't understand that is not how Jesus dealt with us when we were heathens. Jesus relentlessly was going back, trying to win them back to his heart. We got to do the same. So even when we have to say, brother, we are sorry. These positions you hold are fanatical. We have proved it through scripture. We have brought other witnesses. You are not here counsel. You will not submit. So as a result of that, it is with sorrow in our heart that we have to now get to a place that we have to disfellowship you even from the family of God. God wanted that thing to impress deep in the heart. And then when that person says, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want. And they start their own offshoot movements or whatever else. That is when they get the most visits, prayers, phone calls, letters, and everything else to say, brother, please, we miss you. Came by to pray with you, pray for you. And we labor to win that soul because that's what we do with heathens. Amen. So religious freedom, this was the other horn. This is what God wanted to be accomplished amidst this nation that was rising. The two horns represented republicanism and protestantism. A government without a king, a church without a pope. A separation of church and state. That is how America got started. In fact, we are told in the book Maranatha, it says right here, here is a striking figure. Of the rise and growth of our nation. She's commenting on the two horns. She says, here is a striking figure, the rise and growth of our nation. And the lamb-like horns, emblems of innocence and gentleness, well represent the character of our government as expressed in its two fundamental principles, republicanism and protestantism. Maranatha 193, paragraph 40. Isn't it amazing how we're proving this from the Bible? Do you understand, saints, especially for those of us who was here last night? Do you understand what I'm saying now? When we're like, look, these things can come out through scripture. We just got to study it. That's all. Got to study a little harder than we've been doing. But it's there. It's in the Bible. And here it is. Inspiration simply puts the endorsement on it. Now, going on, here's what it stated next. The Lord has done more for the United States than for any other country upon which the sun shines. It says here he provided... Notice that he provided. It says here he, God, provided an asylum for his people where they could worship him according to the dictates of conscience. It says here Christianity has progressed in its purity. The life-giving doctrine of the one mediator between God and man has been freely taught. God designed that this country. So notice when the second beast came up, God actually had a design for it. He designed for it. It says God designed that this country should ever remain free for all people to worship him in accordance with the dictates of conscience. He designed that its civil institutions in their expansive productions should represent the freedom of gospel privileges. Maranatha 193 paragraph 4. So God wanted us to understand that, listen, the way America got started truly Two horns like a lamb. But the problem is, it says it will do what? That part of the prophecy we can't ignore. 
it will begin to speak as a dragon. Now, how does a dragon speak? You just read it. In Revelation 12 and verse, go back. Revelation 12, 13. Look at it again. Look at it again. It's right there. It's right there. How does the dragon speak? Watch this. So Revelation 12, what does it say in verse 13? You remember what it says? Yep, so watch. Revelation 12 and verse 13, the Bible says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, what did he do to the woman? Now, how did he persecute the woman? What did he have to have to do it? Power, but what was the power? How was it demonstrated? Through what? Through church and state. The Bible says the second beast will speak as a dragon. How does a dragon speak? It persecutes. It persecutes the people of God. And it's going to persecute the people of God through the union of church and state. So this second beast is going to have all the power of the first beast. So it's going to speak like a dragon by persecuting the people of God through the union of church and state. We're going to see the same exact thing happen. You understand that? Now go to Revelation 13. Watch what it says next. As it continues, it says now in verse 13, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So we know that it's going to get very, very serious. It's going to get very hot. And the only way this could happen is there has to become a dissolving of present freedoms. Constitutional rights. In order for Revelation 13 to come to pass, then these things have to dissolve. And somehow, we have to get to a point where every earthly support becomes cut off. So, notice. The first thing we have to understand is America leads out, according to the verse. Oh, look at verse 14 again. Don't miss this point. It's good to know. Some of us are looking in the wrong place for prophetic fulfillment. What do I mean? Look at verse 14. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying unto them that dwell on the earth that who? That they should make an image to the beast. So is America going to come like some big, strong, dictating rulership that's just going to tell everybody it is what it is and this is what we're doing? No. They are going to coerce, manipulate. They're going to try to present it as even something attractive and try to say that they should want an image of the beast. By the way, what was the image of the beast? What did it look like? It had a union of? Church and state. So they actually are saying the people, they're going to move the people that they are going to want it. And then what they're going to do is just say, oh, you want it? Vote for it. Because that's how we do things in America. And when they vote for it, then America says, you vote it, you get it. You understand? All right. So now, watch what happens. So America leads out. But then it causes the earth, which means all other nations follow suit. So this is how we are to watch the prophetic fulfillment. We are looking for America to lead out. And then as America leads out, we can expect Canada, we can expect Bermuda, we can expect all the other countries that's going to start falling in line, ultimately to reach the whole world. That's why we're told, as America 
The land of religious liberty shall unite with the papacy, enforcing the conscience and compelling men to honor the false Sabbath. The people of every country on the globe will be led to follow her example. Last day events, 135. So again, we're seeing it from Bible. We're also seeing it from inspiration. So God is helping us see that this is what we should be looking out for because that's what we saw in the feet of iron and clay right before the kingdom comes. There's going to be an effort to unite church and state. They will not cleave, meaning they won't last forever. That's why when Daniel says, but they did not cleave. When God introduced cleaving, where's the first time the word cleave comes up in all the Bible? Genesis 2.24. You remember where it says, therefore shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave. How long did God want it to last? Forever. So therefore, when you think of cleave, you think of something that lasts how long? Forever. So Daniel says, I see feet of iron and clay that's going to do their effort, but they shall not cleave, meaning they shall not last how long? Forever. Why? Because Jesus is going to come and crush it. You understand that? Jesus is going to crush it. And I'm so thankful for Jesus. So we have nothing to fear for the future, except as we forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. God says, I got it under control. That's why Christians can appear crazy. Because people will say, why do you have all this peace in a very perplexed world? Because we know who has this world. And we know who has us in this world. And that's why we can be messengers of light to others who don't have what we have. You understand that? All right. So, because we understand this, the next question is, what would be key agitations in America to ultimately pave the way for a union of church and state? What would be the key agitations? What are things that would have to take place to get America to the place to say, look, your rights and all these things got to go. It's not going to work anymore. Well, it's very simple. Number one, movements of equality. Movements of safety and movements of unity. These are the last three efforts that Satan's going to counterfeit. By the way, did you know that equality is of God? Does God believe in equality? Yes, Yes, he does. He wants us to remember Jesus in Matthew 23. He said, listen, he says, one is your master in heaven. All you are brethren. There's an equality that exists amongst us. You understand that? Mm -hmm. Safety. Does God believe in safety? Of course God believes in safety. God even believes in this word self-preservation. There's a good way for self-preservation. There's a bad way. And it's interesting. The good way for self-preservation is through the lowering of oneself. Satan's counterfeit of self-preservation is exalting oneself. It's pretty interesting. Does God believe in unity? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have loved one for another. So Jesus says, look, of course he believes in unity. We should be pressing together for unity like never before. The only thing is biblical unity. Not false unity. Biblical unity. What is biblical unity? Go to the book of Ephesians 4. If you go to Ephesians 4, what is biblical unity? Notice what the Bible says. If you look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we get the context of biblical unity. And it's beautiful. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, notice what the Bible says. And when you get there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Then what does it say in verse 3? Endeavoring to keep the what? Unity. Unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. Does God want us to endeavor and strive for unity? Yes. Yes, we should. But who is the one that governs that unity? His spirit. Unity of the spirit. So the only way we can have biblical unity is it must be governed by God's spirit. We cannot be bonded in Christian unity if God's Holy Spirit is not the one binding. Now, why is that important? Because John 16 and verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. John 16. And now we're looking at verse 13. How does God's spirit therefore lead? John 16 and verse 13. Bible says in John 16, right there in verse 13, how does God's spirit lead? John 16 and verse 13. If we're there, say amen. Amen. The Bible says in John 16 and verse 13, how be it? When he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now notice, we are united by God's spirit and God's spirit leads and guides us into all truth. So the only true unity amongst Christians is unity in truth, not lies. You stand for truth, we can unite. You're against truth, we can't unite. You understand that? You will understand why this is so important, especially with our closing message tonight. As I told you, every message is tied in to the other message. God wants us to understand that Satan is doing what he always does. He counterfeits. You remember, in equality, he tried to do that in Isaiah 14. You can just write down the verses. We don't have to review them all. But if you look at Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, that's what he was striving for. He said, I will ascend above the stars of God. I will this, I will that. And then he closed by saying, I will be like the Most High. But the truth of the matter is, is that while he was striving for equality with God, he was in fact trying to (coughs) usurp God. And it's very different because when Jesus had equality with God, he humbled himself. I mean, you see total contrast between the character of Satan and the character of Christ. But then he tried to do that through the people in Genesis 3. And that's why he told Eve, he says, no, the only reason why you're not eating this fruit, God doesn't want you to do it because he knows the day you do it, you'll be equal. You'll be like God's yourself. You understand that? So he had the deception in his own mind and then he tries to pass it on to the people. He did the same thing with safety. In Isaiah 14, 12, when he was saying, I will be like the Most High, when he was trying to usurp God, he knew that's the only way that I could stay safe. I got to be above him so I can eliminate him. So I can eliminate him, remove him. Otherwise, he threatens my supremacy. You see the same thing revealed in Genesis 11, 4 through 6. Let us make a tower that we can make a name for ourselves and preserve ourselves. See the same thing. So notice... An exalting of oneself for the purpose of self-preservation. You see the same thing happening. Unity. When you read John the 8th chapter, when you read John the 8th chapter in verse 44, the Bible says Satan is the father of lies. Remember Jesus said you are of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he abode not in the truth whenever he tell a lies he speaks of his own because he is a liar and the father of it so when Jesus made that point here it is in Revelation 12 4 we see that's exactly what he did his tail drew a third part of the angels he literally lied to them and through lies created unity but it was on the wrong side so Satan is literally taking the virtues of God 
equality, safety, unity, the virtues of God and government, and now he perverts it to use it as an impetus that's actually going to bring on the mark of the beast crisis to God's people. So the question is, do we see these movements taking place today? As an example, equality. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to let you know immorality is the new equality. Immorality is the new equality. There is video upon video and the key argument that has brought the homosexual community to the high exalted position that it's in where it is now popular to be gay and unpopular to be heterosexual. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that this happened, brothers and sisters, is because of that word equal. Equality is an issue that has affected the world and people have the nerve to try to equate. Now, I am especially insulted as a black man. Because that is what they tried to use. They tried to have the nerve to compare gay rights yes, yes. with the civil rights. Yes, yes. That is a slap in the face to every black person that exists. There is nothing I can do to change my blackness. I guarantee you that. And I don't want to. Amen. 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 And you shouldn't either if you're not black. I mean, we, we were created just how God wanted it. Amen. Amen. And we are all of one blood. Amen. 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 But there's nothing I can do to change this. But there are people all the time with living testimonies that they used to be gay and are no longer gay. And they are genuine, honest people. And I know many of them personally, brothers and sisters. So I believe that homosexuality is a choice. I didn't choose to be black. You didn't choose to be white. But they choose. They may not know it. They think, oh, just because you feel it, you got to do it. Oh, brothers, listen, I got articles on this stuff. <laughs> Seriously, I do, because I, I don't like the, the, the deceptions that are going before the world right now that's tricking people. Because all of a sudden, everybody's gay. Everybody. All of a sudden, you see, you got to understand this, the spirit and mindset of Sodom. I remember C.D. Brooks, he did a sermon years ago, obviously. And Elder Brooks, he talked about how in Sodom, people would get so bored with the present sins of the day that they began to give rewards for people who could come up with the most new and basic sin. You understand that? People have been practicing regular heterosexual interaction for so long, so now that it is seriously popular to be gay, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, people are just, you know, I, I realize I'm gay. Yeah, yeah. All, of a sudden, a lot of people, all of a sudden, people are just awakening to the fact, you know, I'm gay too. I'm gay too. Everybody's gay. And what's happening is, and now all of a sudden, they're entering into a new phase of experimentation. And Satan is having a field day with all of this. And I say that with all due respect. I mean, listen, sin does have to be called by its right name. I believe that a heterosexual that practices fornication is a sinner. And I believe homosexual lifestyle is a sin as well. I want to make that very clear. So I'm not here to, you know, endorse heterosexual interactions that God has not governed. God never made sex for men and women. You don't read that anywhere in the Bible. God did not make sex for men and women. He made it for husbands and wives. So any people who are having sex outside of husband and wives, God says that's an abomination. That is a perversion of his design. So I don't care if it is a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. That is a sin and that thing can separate you from God. But to live a homosexual lifestyle is also an abominable act, according to scripture. And we ought not apologize for that as Bible-believing Christians. We just have to understand that if we're going to exert ourselves to win that heterosexual couple in fornication, we should exert ourselves the same exact way to win those homosexuals who are living in a homosexual lifestyle. Amen. Amen. 
We ought not to be like heterosexual is a, is a good sin and homosexuality is a bad sin. That's foolishness. That's not biblical. So God wants us to understand this is the new equality. And brothers and sisters, this thing is serious because if you just look at the chart, growth of same-sex marriage, end of 2013, all the red. That was it. End of 2014. Look at what happened. Just by the end of 2014. Then, June 26, 2015, fully approved. Talk about great changes are soon to take place in our world and the final movements will be rapid ones. Brothers and sisters, it's right in front of our face. But you know what I believe? To a degree. I believe a lot of this is a smokescreen. You know why? Because what this is doing, now that people can't even, you know, if, you, if you're a Christian and you own a bakery... And somebody says you need to make a cake with two men on it or two women. And you see how people are saying, no, I can't do that. That violates my principles. Or if you have a photography business and somebody says, I want you to take pictures of my gay wedding. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't do that. Oh, it's a lawsuit. And the people are losing. You're seeing this. It's all over the news. People are losing. They're losing the war. <coughs> Judges, clerks, people who work in municipalities, people are coming in. I want you to issue me a license. And people are saying, I'm sorry. I can't do that. That's my Christian conviction. And people are saying again, hey, you can't do that. And the people are being penalized, fired, and everything else. You know what it's doing? It's drawing conservative Christians together. Conservative Christians are coming together saying, look guys, I know you're Baptists. I know you're Seventh-day Adventists. I know we're Pentecostal. But you know what? We are all Protestants and we got an issue with the state. And therefore we need to come together. And what's happening is this is becoming a pull to bring the people together regardless of denominational affiliation. And what it's going to do is ultimately bring on a state of persecution. Yes. That the world was not ready for. Satan, unfortunately, is a diabolical genius. But God gave us eyesight. God gave us something that we are to understand and look at all these events and we are to look at it and to put it in its proper place and show people the city of refuge from what's getting ready to take place in this world. But it's not just here because it's also safety, self-preservation. Do you know America has never become so concerned about safety? With all these terrorist activities, and of course ISIS is the new one. This is the, the latest organization. Where they're coming around and killing all these folks and there's video upon video, etc. Where all of a sudden safety is becoming an issue to the point that people are saying, look, I don't care what you got to do. Change the laws. Give us safety. People are at a place now in America that they are so afraid that they are saying, look, I will surrender my rights and my freedoms that you may give me safety. It's all playing out. And it's not just with terrorism. It's also here. Crime. Look at what it says. This is powerful. CNN, June 4th, 2015, is a new crime wave on the horizon. Notice what it says. After decades of a downward trend in crime, residents in some large U.S. cities wonder if a reversal is coming. If you live in Baltimore, you know that May, with 43 homicides, was the deadliest month since 1972. It says, oh, if you are a Houstonian, you've probably heard that murders were up 45% through April compared to the same period in 2004. The latest statistics in Milwaukee show a 103% spike in murders year to date compared with a year ago. In Atlanta, 41 people were killed in the first five months of this year compared with 27 in the same period last year, an increase of 52%. Right in our own neck of the woods. 
In other words, crime is on an increase. So what do people want? They want safety. safety. And that's why you're hearing a lot about gun control. Hearing a lot about gun control, which we know is a civil right. But notice what's happening. The agitation merits. If they're constantly threatening us, then change the law to give us safety. And that's exactly where Satan wants them. It's exactly where Satan wants them. I remember I was in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, they have a state. That's where I live now. And in New Hampshire, they have a statement that says, live free or die. That's the statement in New Hampshire, live free or die. And I remember one time I was getting my car service. And as I was getting my car service, a man walks in. And he walks in. This guy had the biggest gun on his hip. He just was sitting there with the gun out of his shirt. It wasn't covered. Out of his shirt. Big gun hanging out on the side of his hip. And I just saw that gun. And I said, Father, be with us in a very special way. I'm asking for double portions of your angels. Because if this guy wanted to, Satan could possess his mind. He can kill all of us. So he started praying. So next thing you know, he and another guy start talking about all the gun law issues. And the guy actually said something that was smart. He said, he says, I don't see why they're even going through all this stuff. He says, listen, you can't legislate evil. He's like, you can't go to legislation to put a check on evil. You take away a man's gun, he'll learn how to kill you with a knife. You take away his knife, he'll learn how to kill you with a bow and arrow. You take away his bow and arrow, he'll learn how to kill you with a karate chop. The bottom line is evil is evil. And if the evil is in a man's heart... One way or the other. You see, God raised this movement up because we don't deal with all that stuff. You know what we deal with? We deal with the root. We deal with the sin issue. You see, you bring a man and a woman to a place where they know how to have victory over sin through the righteousness of Christ. That's how you get bigots to stop being bigots. That's how you get murderers to stop murdering. That's how you get thieves to stop stealing. You got to deal with the sin issue. But people are trying to use laws to try to make people righteous, and it does not work. And this has become sad because not only is there a rise in general crime, there is a rise even in police brutality. Yes. It's real. So the very individuals that many thought could be there to protect us constantly. Videos keep coming up. And I use the most obvious one. This man was completely unjust. Completely. And this is what's happening. So police brutality, a lot of people are now being slaughtered and destroyed. So you know what people are saying? They're saying there's no other type of safety. We need help. And that's what the world is crying after. They're saying we need help. And they're willing to surrender their freedoms in the name of safety. Our economy, brothers and sisters. You saw what happened with the stock market this week. Oh, yes. Oh, brothers, God, God was trying to just help us understand. Yes. If ever there was a time we need to be judicious with our money, we need to know how to manage our money, and we need the Holy Spirit to truly guide us in the expending of our money. Where are we putting our money? We should be putting it towards things that are designed to finish this work. Amen. Because nothing else really matters. Amen. The more that we understand that, literally, just last year, the rich poor gap. Remember James 5, 1 through 8. James actually showed us that there is going to be a prophetic process to get rid of the middle class and there's only going to be poor and rich. That's it. We are seeing it all come to pass. Yellen says, rich poor gap is concerning her. October 17, 2014. Look at what it says. It says, that's essentially the question Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen raised Friday in a speech on the widening gap between rich and poor in the United States. She is an authority to talk about what's happening in the economy. She is the chair of the Federal Reserve. 
And here it is, she says, I think it is appropriate to ask whether this trend is compatible with the values rooted in our nation's history. Among them, the high value Americans have traditionally placed on equality of opportunity, the central bank chief said. By some measures, Yellen said, economic inequality is near the highest levels in the past 100 years. There's a process of eliminating the middle class. Yes. So everybody's going to be either poor or rich. And as we read in James 5, the rich are going to get richer and they're going to oppress the poor. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is we're watching all these things happening around us. And that is under safety. And then, of course, unity. Unity, brothers and sisters. Today, the new unity looks like this. The Protestants are coming together with the papacy. There is a biblical unity that is being violated and there is a perverted unity rising up in its place. We know that this man, Bishop Tony Palmer, gave a serious impetus and oh my word, brothers and sisters, this evening, our last message, which is going to be approximately about 6 o'clock, 6.30, oh brothers and sisters, I'm going to show you two things. I'm going to show you where we are in time, but then more importantly, I'm going to show you exactly what God called us to do. Because we are actually living in a time, and I'm talking about in addition to, so a lot of times we hear a lot about the you know, different things that are essential, the outpost, the sanitarium, and this, that, and the other. We just had our dedication weekend as to co-emissions, and I pray that this message gets on audioverse. It was Brother Lance Wilbur. Lance was one of the co-directors at the co-emissions our school. Let me tell you something. Brother Lance did a message. I said, man, I wonder if people got it. He did a message called The Post Without. Because, you know, normally we think of the outpost, right? He did something called the post without. And everybody was like, okay, where is he going with this? And my brother did a message, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you. I mean, I approve that message. And the reason why is because what he did was he said, right now everybody wants to get outpost centers. But he was showing through the story of Jonah. He was saying, if you and I are not in our hearts where we need to be, we will mess up the outpost. It's not enough to just say we got to get outposts started. We believe in that. We want to get outposts started too. We're encouraging people to get outposts started, get the sanitarium. But brothers and sisters, if you don't have a heart like Jesus, you will destroy the work. And it's happened too many times. Too many unconverted people governing ministries. And the next thing you know, eventually, sooner or later, that stuff, that baggage starts coming out. And they ruin the work, blast through the name, and slow down the progress of the working of God's spirit. I hope that message gets on audio. That's a powerful message. But nevertheless, the key is this. There's a unity that is taking place right now. And we are told, as it relates to that image of the beast, it says, when the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. Great Controversy 445. Brothers and sisters, it's coming together. It's coming together in sweeping force. And this is not a time to be filled with fear. It's a time to be filled with enough love for God and his people that we're going to get out of our chairs. We're going to do something about it. There's some of you right now that God has been calling into his work. I read volume 7, page 27, where we're told that the Spirit of God is going to impress upon individuals' hearts, that God is going to call them out of the common vocations of life. And he is going to require them to get a training to fit them, that they may go forward in full-time labor to minister on his behalf. There's some of us right now that God has already called. And some of us are like Jonah. We're not paying attention to the calling. 
And I'm going to let you know something. You will never have peace until you do what God says. No matter how challenging it may appear, or appear, you'll never have peace until we get to a place we do what God says. Jesus wants us to understand time is almost finished. And what motivated him? When he saw time was almost finished, the Bible says he went forward and preached the gospel. He started to give what he had. You see, I agree, we should have an experience to go ahead and help others see it. But Jesus had it. It was time to give it now. And the more that he saw time was almost finished is the more effort and more impetus that he put to give it and to make sure that others got it before it was eternally too late. We must understand that time is almost finished. And the question is, do you and I reflect the lovely image of Jesus as we should? Send her attending angel unto her. Get ready, get ready, get ready. We're going to have to die a greater death to the world than we have ever yet died. And brothers and sisters, with all these prophetic realities, if you're saying, you know what? I can see. I see the agitations. I see how it's lining up. I see where everything is going. Lord, show me how I can be part of your team to be part of your solution rather than part of the problem. And if you're willing to make that covenant or renew that covenant with God, This evening, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you exactly where all these agitations, these steps towards unity. I'm going to show you exactly where these things are leading and what God wants to get done about it. And my hope and my prayer is that we all will be counted amongst God's team. And if it's your desire to say, Lord, whatever it takes, I'm willing to be part of your team. Realizing this is not a time to try to preserve myself in the way the world is doing it. This is a time of me to give of myself the way Christ did it because time is really almost finished. And if you're willing to make that covenant, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And as you're standing to your feet, I want you to think about it, because the Spirit of God is talking to a lot of us. And He's letting us know there are some decisions that we need to make. Some of us are spending way too much time simply working, trying to always just earn the money so we can pay bills. Brothers and sisters, it is not even life when all we do is live to service debt. It's not even life. There should be something more that our lives are fulfilling rather than simply working, making money, being tired all the time to go back and do it all over again. God says there's a place that he's calling each and every one of us. Now, there may be somebody in this room, even one, even one, and I dare not allow this meeting to close without doing this. There are some of us who are saying, Lord, I'm willing to be part of your team. I'm willing to go forward in your work and to do it in a way that you may be pleased. But it could be that there's somebody in this room that you've never even taken the first step, which is to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. If there's somebody in this room that, by chance, maybe you have never, ever accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, And you have not found him to be enough of a need in your life to really surrender your life of sin and be willing to accept his life of righteousness and allow him to have taken that punishment you deserve so we can have the life he deserved. If there's even one person under the sound of my voice and you've never given your heart to Jesus, you've never truly accepted him as Lord and Savior of your life and you're willing today to say, Lord, take my life as holy thine. I give of myself to you, not my will, but thine be done. If there be even one, I just don't want the opportunity to pass by without presenting that offer. Would there be one person, just by the raise of hands, you say, that's me, I've never given my heart to Jesus. I come to church, I hear a lot of messages, but I've never made a decision. There's a lot of people like that. They listen a lot, but they don't make a decision. 
And if you know you're in that place, that's where it all begins. You can't be part of God's team until you're first inaugurated into the family. And it starts by accepting Christ in your heart as Lord and Savior. And then being willing to let not your will but His be done. Is there one person who says, that's me? Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Is there another? Amen. God bless you, sister. Is there another who says, I've never even made this profession. If you're there, we need to pray for you, brothers and sisters, because that's where it begins. And you need to understand that this means your life's no longer yours anymore. It's as it were you laid yourself on an altar and you allowed God to slay the beast within. And now he wants to fill that gap with his Holy Spirit that he can live out his righteous life within you. Will it require change? Yes, it will. Will it be painful at times? Yes, it will. But you will discover that actions repeated will form habits. And habits do form character. And character will determine your destiny. And God's destiny is he wants us to come home with him. And so that's why you raised your hand. So is there one more who says, yep, I've never given my heart to Jesus, but I'm willing to do it today. No more church attendance. Simply, I'm making a decision for Christ. I just want to make sure I don't pass you by. I don't pass you by. Amen. God bless you. All right. With that being stated, please, if we can, let's go to our knees together and let's seal the covenant we have just made with God on our knees. And let the Lord speak to our hearts. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for the several blessings that you have given to us, your people. We truly thank you for the way your spirit has been speaking to our hearts. Father, it's our desire to serve you. We don't want to be counted amongst those whom Jesus will say, I knew you not. But Lord, we don't want fear to be the great motive of why we serve you. We want to be counted amongst those patient saints who serve you because we love you. And Lord, we need that love put within our hearts because we can see time is almost finished and we need an experience with you that we can impart to others and help them know of the everlasting gospel before it is eternally too late. Please, Lord, give us wisdom beyond our years. Bless us, we pray, with understanding and help us to go forward in faith that we can truly be part of your team and finish your work. Lord, I thank you for the precious hands of those who have gone up. They know their own experience. It's easy to show up to church and everybody makes assumptions. But they knew in their hearts they have never made a decision to crown you king of their lives. And I thank you for the breakthrough that you've given to each of them today. That your spirit has spoken to their hearts. Lord, I pray, please, let not one of these precious souls be lost on the wayside. Show us how as a church and as brothers and sisters to strengthen our family. And that by your grace, even when we as humans fail, please post double portions of angels around them who excel in strength. And may you keep them even until the perfect day is our prayer that we ask in Jesus name. Amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh Day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. 
May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.